is I spent time over the last two years talking to about 90 interviews and counting. It's interesting to see how people's IQ and EQ play out in their leadership style and their approach to market. Now, all the founders I talked to are driven for sure. All of them are smart. They have a great idea of what they want to accomplish, but they use their talents on IQ and EQ in different ways. Most of them use IQ externally and they use EQ internally, thinking that more the softer skill to build culture. Our next guest uses both equally internally and externally and does a phenomenal job of knowing his EQ and his IQ. So let's find somebody who's one of the best I've talked to on balancing both styles to build, grow your business, and build a great culture today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Will. Todd Wills. Really excited to have Bob Tinker on. Bob was the founder and CEO, co-founder of Mobile Iron. He grew that business from two to a couple thousand. He did a phenomenal job of building, growing, and engaging his business, and he looked at it as both EQ and IQ. How do I go in and build the right type of organization and the right type of um, business that isn't just built on one? And I'll give you a hint. One of the really great quotes that he has and great insights is this idea that if we had just built a purely market-driven, research-based decision company, we would have died. So today, exciting interview. We're going to talk to Bob Tinker, and I'm going to let him take it away as we talk about EQ, IQ, and not just product market fit, but go-to-market fit. Take it away, Bob. Bob, before we start, who are you and why the heck are you here? Hi, Todd. Thanks Hi. for uh, having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. The, uh, so I'm a multi-time entrepreneur, uh, been through the ringer, had one succeed, uh, one fail, excuse me, and two succeed. And, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the entrepreneurial community is that founders help founders, entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs. And, uh, it's one of the great things that makes this whole flywheel work. So, uh, I'm here just to do my part to, talk about some of the things that I may have learned and share some stories and hopefully can help some other entrepreneurs along the way. Oh, I love this. And, and I love the fact that you owned up to a failure along the way. I mean, look, I think we all go to these trade shows and conferences and events and somebody gets up there and they talk about this overnight success company that they created. And they're not up there talking about the five failures they had beforehand or the three times right. it didn't work or, or what it took to get them to that place. We all talk about the sort of, you know, what success looks like. And you look at that tip of the iceberg and then all right. the chaos that happens below the waterline. So it's, it's encouraging that people mention the failures along the way because it's not the smooth path to success. Uh, it's definitely not. And even the things that actually look successful underneath the water is actually quite turbulent. Right. Even, uh, you know, you learn a lot from your failures, but even underneath success, there's lots of little micro failures. Well, and, and let's talk about that for a second, because we've got a couple of questions that are, or things that we want to really go on topic. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm excited about those. But let's talk about this because it seems sort of salient. You know, Mobile Iron, huge mm -hmm. success. Right. I mean, on, on anybody's books. Right. You grew that company, successful IPO. You did really well with it. 
but I would imagine that there were all sorts of little stumbling blocks along the way. And, and even some points as I've talked to other founders where you get to this place, like, is this worth it? Is this going to, is this going to happen? Like these moments of self doubt of, is this thing really going to go on? So I'd love to hear some of those like inflection points that were really challenging for you along the way. We don't have to go into a ton of detail, but I'm sure they're there. Um, you know, some of the challenges are sort of specific to the company and the situation, the product, the market, whatever you're doing. And some of the challenges are actually much more personal in terms of like, how am I messing things up or what was I doing wrong that I needed to change? So maybe if we sort of divide it into those two buckets, sort of an example is, you know, in the early days of Mobile Iron, like most companies, you're desperately just trying to find product market fit. Yeah. Right. How do you find those first 10 or 15 customers that are willing to give you money and say good things about your product? And, you know, we actually did a pretty good job of finding those first 10 or 15 customers that are willing to give us money. Um, but then we hit a couple really sort of challenging forks in the road. Um, one was a strategic decision, which was that if you rewind back to 2008 when Mobile Iron was getting off the ground, like the mobile world was BlackBerry, Symbian, Windows Phone. Like we all laugh about that today, right? It's like right. really, it really did look like that. And there's even Palm Trio out there. Um, and you know, we looked at what was happening, and we started to see this thing called the iPhone show up at work. And if we had actually just purely done sort of analytical market research, the company would have headed down the path to follow, go solve mobile security problems for BlackBerry, Windows, and Symbian. Instead, we chose to go focus on solving those challenges for iPhone. And right. at the time, it was a big risk because not that customers were using it. You know, it still was considered a toy in the enterprise. So if we had just done purely market-driven research-based decisions, we would have died. Because we would yeah. have ended up like building a surfboard on a tapering, dying wave. So instead, we actually chose to go focus on how do you solve mobile security challenges for iPhone. And that was a pretty scary decision at the time, right? Like walking into the board meeting saying, hey, we're going to go focus here because we think there's going to be urgency. There's bigger pain. We'll be able to get into more customers. And yet every analyst, every market survey was saying, sort of the iPhone's still a toy in the workplace. Yeah. Right? So like you have those really sort of gut-wrenching, scary decisions where you have to pick those forks in the road and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, in that case, you know, we chose to optimize around where we felt like there was going to be urgency. And I think sort of looking back on it, that was one of my key lessons is find the urgency. Um, you know, I hear a lot of other startup founders be like, how do you create urgency in a customer to unlock growth? It's like, well, if you're creating urgency, that's a problem. It's actually much better just to go find urgency that's already there. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, you know, that scary decision back then that seemed illogical was driven by this sort of intuition that we needed to find the urgency that was already there. And we sensed the urgency in going down that path. Um, you know, but it was a scary choice. And, uh, you know, frankly, if we had sort of been purely logical and analytical about it, I think we would have failed. Well, so this is a really, really good lesson because I think 
a lot of founders get caught up in, uh, I've got to follow the playbook, right? I've got to take like these next natural steps and I've got advisors around me that are helping, steering me and guiding me. But I think a lot of times there's this, okay, well, what does your gut, what does your instinct tell you? You know the market, you know the space, you're living and breathing it. And sometimes you got to go off book. And knowing when to do that, how to do that, when to look at your advisors and when to say, no, actually, I think I know better on this one, even if it goes against the grain. And there was a really interesting piece yesterday where Danny Elfman, who was just known as the Oingo Boingo guy and did a bunch of quirky uh, soundtracks, was talking about having to be put in a position to collaborate with Prince for the Batman soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I, I had to walk away because I knew it wasn't going to be what I wanted. And Prince is amazing. And it was a really scary decision for him. It turned out to be the right one because they asked him to come back and he did the whole thing himself. And it you know, was a Grammy nominated soundtrack. And so that was one of those same thing for you, those scary decisions of, hey, my gut's just telling me even what everybody else is saying, I got to go in a different direction. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, it wasn't purely like a gut call. Right. It wasn't yeah. like we just sort of said, well, we think, you know, <laughs> the I think the distinction I would make is it was driven by talking to customers. Yeah. Rather than talking to market analysts or looking at numbers. It was really driven by lots of customer conversations and listening to those customers where their pain was and where their urgency was. Right. Even if like you call Gartner and they wouldn't necessarily agree. <laughs> Yeah, so it was there was a gut element to it, but it was more driven by sort of the common thread was listening to customers and figuring out what their pain is that's going to drive urgency. You know, a lot of startups sort of begin with, hey, I've got this cool technology. Who do I go figure out how to sell it to? Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things I'm proud of is, you know, Mobile Iron, we spent six months talking to customers before we wrote a line of code or raised a dollar venture capital because we wanted to really understand what the problem was. And I think that muscle memory of spending lots of time talking to customers, spending lots of time talking to customers to understand their problems, where their urgency was, helped us sort of tease apart this key decision about do we take the bigger risk and go with the new thing versus go with the obvious path. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting sort of epilogue to that, which we actually ended up end of lifing some of our product capabilities on BlackBerry and Symbian Windows Mobile that some of our early customers bought, right? So not only was this decision like a scary decision to go do focus sort of where we thought the the, the puck was going. Yeah. Um, we had a number of customers that bought our product based upon where the puck was. And by making this decision, we effectively stranded them. So we had to go mm. back and actually go back to some of these early customers and say, I'm sorry, we're actually discontinuing this part of the product that you bought. And remember, these are like one of our first 15 or 20 customers. Yeah, exactly. So going back to them and saying, hey, sorry, psych, we're not gonna be <laughs> like continuing that product investment was um, a really scary moment. But you know, as a startup trying to figure out where your hot spot is and where the urgency is that's gonna drive growth, you know, sometimes you end up with a couple different like hotspots, but you can really only pick one or two to go after. And ironically, you have to prune the, the secondary or tertiary ones. And sometimes that's really painful because you end up damaging some customers that depended on you. Yeah. So uh, I ended up flying to uh, North Carolina to go meet a customer called PPDI. They're a big clinical trial company and uh, gave them their money back uh, because 
And we're like, look, we're not going to do a good job for you on this. We're not going to be investing in it. We're into lifing it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing is fast forward two years, they actually became a, uh, customer on our mainline product. So, uh, kudos for the move of going in and having the direct conversation with your customers and talking to them about the end of life and, and for refunding their money, especially as a fledgling startup and, and doing what was right by your customers. It also goes into you spending the six months before you wrote the line of code to really understand what the market is. We're going to get into product market fit here in a, in a minute. Cause mm-hmm. I, I know that's one of the things we, we desperately want to talk about. But I want to finish up the one other piece of the first question about we talked about some of the um, practical market led things, but you also talked about some personal things that that were sort of stumbling blocks along the way. Let's spend a minute there, then we'll come back to product market. Yeah, the. um, You know, reflecting on being a founding CEO and uh, growing company from sort of three people to nearly a thousand that. You know, and talking to other entrepreneurs who have been through the same thing, I think there's a very profound question, which is why is building a startup and growing a startup so hard on the people involved? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I certainly felt it. Um, and I think for me and a lot of other founders and early startup leaders is that as your company changes, like let's say it goes from 50 people to 150 or 150 to 450 or whatever it is, or you change your strategy, something in the company changes because you believe it's the right thing to do. Your job changes as CEO. And you know, ironically, if you look back over my time in the CEO chair at Mobile Iron, I had three really different CEO jobs. And it's not like my title changed. It's not like anybody sort of grabbed me and said, hey, Bob, your job's different today, right? It kind of sneaks up on you. And, you know, suddenly the things that used to work for me in the earlier stages of the company are actually the things that are now holding me back or like kind of screwing things up at this next stage. So ironically, there was this, like what got me from A to B became the things that were holding me back or killing me going from B to C. And those challenges were the things that Hmm. were particularly hard because it wasn't like I had to go learn something new. It was more, I had to kind of unlearn stuff that got me where I was because if I kept doing things the same way I was, I was actually going to fail and screw things up. You know, along the way, there's probably three or four times a CEO where you almost get fired because you don't make these changes and adapt to what the company needs. You know, the first one for me was, you know, with about 50 people, you know, the CEO job went from being sort of like this Captain America Wonder Woman job where it's like you and the platoon in the woods, like fighting, like throwing punches, getting punched, digging ditches, getting dirty, bouncing into trees. Like it's a blast, right? It's like you and the platoon in the woods. And, you know, I was a product and go-to-market centric founder. So I love spending time with customers and working on product. But then at about 50 people, like my job changed. And it became more like the Avengers. Like where, you know, you have to hire a band of superhero executives, all of whom, each of whom has a better superpower than you, a marketing superhero, a sales superhero, a product superhero, an engineering superhero. 
and they better be better at their jobs than what you how you could do it. And it, you have to let go because if you don't let go and empower these Avengers to be able to do their jobs, you're not gonna be able to hire them or they're gonna quit. And so ironically, sort of this Captain America, Jack of all trades or Wonder Woman, Jack Jane of all trades in the early days that actually makes the company successful actually becomes the exact wrong thing to do at the next stage. And you, you know, that was a tough unlearning for me. And I'll sort of use the word unlearning deliberately because it wasn't like I had to learn something new. It was more that I had to kind of unlearn my old way of behaving and let go and sort of empower these new executives. And I'll tell you, like, you know, when I hired my first grade A VP of sales, a guy named John Donnelly, who was a spectacular early stage VP of sales, like it was super uncomfortable for me. Because what's the first thing John did when he came in? He looked at all the stuff we've been doing around winning early customers and early product and early go to market. And he's like, ah, this is terrible. We could totally do better, right? And so it creates this weird insecurity where it's like, these things that I've been working so hard on with the team are now like somebody's calling my baby ugly, yeah, right? But that's exactly. exactly what should be happening, right? In order to get the company to the next level. So it's these sort of very personal kind of rewiring and unlearning things that were the things that I found sort of uh, were my biggest struggles, you know, being able to let go as you hire Avengers, you know, getting out of the product and sort of, being sort of that product and customer CEO to being the CEO of the whole company. Yeah. Like at some point my team was like, Bob, we're not getting from you what we need. And um, those are the types of challenges that I found were sort of much more personal, um, much harder to deal with, but you know, also in some ways, like after getting through them, super satisfying and sure. really feeling like I had grown as a person and a leader. Well, and, and what you're what you're addressing this this sort of need to evolve yourself at these certain plateau or these inflection points, right? Where you have to go from the thing that was super successful in getting you started, right? This sort of like camaraderie in the early trenches of your team suddenly no longer work. And and I love that you recognize that you need to bring in these amazing people that are better than yourselves, and and be able to sort of check the ego and all the other things that go with it, the emotion of it, that mm -hmm. it's not just you anymore leading the charge. You have to let go and let some of these other people come in and do an amazing job. And that sounds intuitive and it sounds simple, but super challenging. You're, you're not yeah. the first founder I've had this conversation with and it's, it's extremely challenging for some folks. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, part of it's that it generates insecurity because somebody's going to come in and call your baby ugly. Part of it's just a fear and control thing because you're like, man, like what happens if it like doesn't work, right? And it yeah. breaks, right? And, you know, there's a fear and control element there. But, you know, once you get over it, it's a blast. Um, you know, once you start to see sort of these leaders come in and take the reins and make things as good as they can be and to see an executive team functioning as a hive mind, like it's yeah. awesome. Like it's really inspiring mm. and energizing. And you sort of look back on your old self and kind of laugh and be like, oh man, really? <laughs> yeah, but that, that transition is fantastic. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things in particular for the listeners and people that tend to like follow this podcast, 
one of the things that they struggle with are those early stages. And while they have advisors and mentors and they've got people around them, I don't think they're always getting advice on a more emotional level. They're getting the tactical advice, the things we talked about at the earlier stage of you know, market strategy, et cetera. But it's not often that people are sitting down and saying, hey, look, you got to let go. You got to step back. You got to bring people in. You got to evolve your thinking. And that's a hard lesson for people to learn. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because this is- Yeah, a I would actually say it's a hard lesson to learn and it's a hard lesson to unlearn. Okay. Because it's actually, ironically, not necessarily what you need to learn that's the challenge. It's actually what used to work that you need to unlearn. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great the challenge. It. And it's funny, like we are so geared in sort of entrepreneurship and innovation to always be learning and doing what's the next thing. And I think that's super important. What we don't spend enough time on is talking about what do we need to unlearn? Like, what are the things that got us where we are that we need to stop doing? Because those are actually the things that really get in your way. Yeah. Most of us are actually pretty good at learning and adding things into our toolkit. <laughs> it's a lot harder to deliberately take something out of the toolbox. To strip something out, sure. And stop using it. And I think, um, you know, I'm not alone in this. You know, I've talked to tons of other CEOs and executives, and we all sort of struggle with the same you know, challenge of, you know, what got us where we are is not going to, what's going to make us and the team successful going forward. And you really have to check your ego at the door and be willing to unlearn and be insecure. But it's, um, you know, probably the least helpful advice I ever got on this was you need to scale. Like that's how, which, you know, you get this from investors and other people are like, well, you just need to scale, Bob. You're not scaling. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, I actually think nobody actually really knows what this term you need to scale means. Everybody sort of looks at each other like, oh yeah, we know what that means, but nobody actually really knows, knows what it yeah. means. And so that's super frustrating for me and I think a lot of other <laughs> entrepreneurs. So getting like really real and very specific about, well, okay, what does that mean? Like, how do you operationalize? How do you change your behavior? Like, what are you actually changing? Yeah. And I think it's these step functions in terms of changing your behavior, changing the way you think, changing the way you operate, and unlearning what used to work, and recognizing what your new job looks like and learning that. It's those step functions where things break and people need to step aside. You know, it's yeah. sort of a change or be changed world, right? Either you need to change to keep up with what your company needs, or you're gonna get changed. And that sounds kind of ruthless, but it's actually the right thing for the business. Um, you know, the, uh, I have this thing I call the founder oath, which is that um, any startup I work with now, I always make the CEO do it with me because uh, I so profoundly believe in it. It's that, you know, that as a founder, it's not about me, it's about the mission. And, I'll do my best to separate my ego from the company. Hmm. While the company does work for me, I also realize, recognize that the I work for the company and the team. And nothing screws up a great startup like founder drama. Yeah. And if we are so fortunate and so lucky that our company and our opportunity grows, grows beyond my ability to keep up, I will gracefully step aside for the good of the mission. Like, and it's this, you know, leaving your ego at the door that ironically sort of enables the whole founder oath. And it's not really hollow words. I mean, 
you know, if you look at the three founders of Mobile Iron, AJ, Suresh, and myself, you know, at some point, all three of us stepped aside from our original roles, myself included. And it was hard, right? After eight years stepping aside from the CEO role. Yeah. But, you know, it was the right thing for the business. You know, the company had gotten to a thousand people and 180 million. And, you know, frankly, the types of things the company needed for the next stage were not the types of things that, you know, as a public company was probably the right answer for public shareholders for me to be doing. Right. You just have to kind of leave your ego at the door and be like, well, that sucks, but it's the right call. <laughs> right. And I think, uh, yeah, that's where the founder oath comes in, which is, you know, unlearn your way to success, but leave your ego at the door and make sure it's about the mission, not you. So I know there's a bunch of listeners right now that are writing that down. And I also know that there's a bunch of them that are like, damn, I want this guy to be one of my advisors. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek and lightly, but you know, one of the things it's, it's this piece that we don't often talk about. Again, we talked about the tactics I love your sort of quip about, you know, scale, right? Everybody talks about, oh, I got to scale, I got to scale. And you just hear well, what it. What does that repeated. mean? <laughs> I know. It's, it's you know, it's it's uh, business mumbo jumbo, right? It's it's marketing speak. It's It doesn't really mean anything. We get all this great advice, but people aren't really sitting down and talking about leaving your ego at the door and how to change your role and change your mindset and what the role of the CEO needs to be. And again, you've touched on it and we're going to move on here in a second, but you know, hear from a lot of founders, they feel like, okay, this company is my baby. It's my brainchild. It's the thing that I created. And I've got this vision of where I want to go. And so they put themselves front and center of the company, of the idea, of the product through the entire process. And they have a very difficult time sort of letting that go and letting other Mm -hmm. people come in and contribute. And that's where your quote unquote scale never happens because you've got one person that's sort of holding the company back because they're having a, a difficult, challenging time to step away, to step back and let other people come in and help grow that vision and be exactly. a part of that process. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and this challenge repeats itself, not just for the CEO, but for every executive. Like the VP of sales goes through the exact same changes. If you think about the early stage VP of sales versus the mid-stage VP of sales versus the late stage VP of sales, or the same thing for the CFO, or the same thing for head of engineering, like these step function changes where as CEO, I had to unlearn my old job and learn my new job. The same thing happens for every executive over and over again. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Like the early stage VP of sales is a little bit more like Davy Crockett, like find the path through the woods. Right. Yeah. And then once you sort of find that repeatable path through the woods, then the VP of sales job becomes more like Joan of Arc or Braveheart where they're like the the battlefield warrior commander that's assembling the army and leading them up the hill to go kill the enemy. Right. But then the late stage VP of sales job is more like Eisenhower where it's like the general of generals, you know, Eisenhower never set foot on a battlefield ever. Right. He fought the war from the war room. Right. And so Hmm. You know, the VP of sales job goes through these really fundamental changes where you go from, you know, Davy Crockett to Braveheart, Joan of Arc to Eisenhower. And the same challenges I went through as CEO, sort of unlearning and learning my new job, the VP of sales goes through the same thing. The CFO goes through their own things. Like it's this cycle of unlearning and learning as sort of the companies changes, everybody's jobs are changing. So this cycle that you know, I was talking about that was my challenge. Every single one of my leaders went through the same challenge. And I think 
you know, that's an important takeaway for me for all startups and entrepreneurs out there is that this cycle of unlearning and relearning like happens for every leader over and over again. And I think, you know, in many ways, figuring out how to do that and learning how to do that becomes sort of the key for both company growth and personal growth. Well, and this one's really touching on one of the topics that we want to talk about, this whole idea of unlearning, right? And, and you know, as we were doing prep, you said it best, right? The things we were going to focus on were IQ and EQ. Mm-hmm. And, and this is absolutely one of them, this idea of, you know, unlearning these uh, behaviors. I, I know even just from my own views as a marketer, the different role of sort of VP of marketing to head of marketing to CMO Mm-hmm. dramatically different roles. And it's one is I'm sitting down and doing web copy. Then I'm bringing good people in to help me do web copy. And then right. I'm, as a CMO, I'm spending all of my time with the executives and hoping that I've got the right people in place in my marketing organization to actually build and grow it. And those transitions are hard because you have to take a different role and a different mindset. It's exactly what you were talking about. Amen. Exactly. And it's a very high, it's a, you know, it's uh, particularly in sort of technology-enabled startups, we tend to talk about things that are sort of mostly IQ, product, learning, very analytical, and it's great. Like, I love that stuff. Um, these more personal things, organizational things, are much more EQ-driven, uh, but they're just as important. Um, in many ways, like, you know, a very spectacular personal learning experience for everybody involved, um, albeit sometimes painful, because, uh, you know, one of the unfortunate things is that, you know, whether it's for me or any other leader, if you're not able to successfully unlearn your old role and learn your new role and change yourself, the right answer is you should be changed. Hmm. And, you know, or just raise your hand and say, you know, look, maybe I just like doing this role over and over again and go find another company where you're going to play that same role again, rather than trying to make the transition from Braveheart to Eisenhower. Like, you know, (laughs) and that's okay too. And it requires a level of sort of self-awareness to go along with that about uh, what's the right thing for you and what's the right thing for the company. But, uh, you know, we like to think sort of business and building companies is sort of all IQ and analytics and process and operations and strategy. But a big part of this is sort of the EQ part of developing yourself, developing your team and developing your culture. You know, one of the things that I love about C-Suite Radio, I mean love about C-Suite Radio, is our sponsors. That's right. Those are the people that put time, effort, money, resources, and their faith in this podcast. So I would really appreciate if you listen to one of them today. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the interview. Well, it's it's um it's interesting because this mirrors very much what we the reason why we wrote the book, right? Beyond product, it really is this focus on we talk to a lot of product engineering driven founders and they built these amazing products, super passionate about it, it's all about their innovation. They've got this great idea into the marketplace. And so this, you know, if we build it, they will come mentality starts to evolve. And you think, well, I've just built it. It's it's my baby. It's it's the best thing ever. And you're super excited about it. And you're trying to get other people on board. Yep. And so, you know, what happens is you just sort of go, well, I don't I don't need marketing or I don't need I don't need promotion. I don't it just it's gonna happen because as soon yep. as I put the website up, you know, we're gonna get flooded. And what we found was 
that sort of idea of like, okay, you can have the, the best idea in the world, but if you're not sort of looking at what, how do you connect with the customer? How do you find yep. your market fit? How do you find people that are going to share that passion with you, both internally and externally? How you build the culture of your company? All of those things are just as important as having a really amazing product. Totally. And there is a big difference between it. building a business and building a product. <laughs> that and, is a direct uh, quote in the book, by the way. So <laughs> Is it really nice? It is. All right, I'm, fantastic. I love that we're uh, kindred so, spirits, uh, man. Yeah, kindred spirits on this, and you know, the there's sort of two frustrations I found for me as sort of a founder that I wish sort of the Valley Silicon Valley ecosystem had done a better job for me on, just selfishly. One is that uh, what we've been talking about, sort of building companies, is hard. It's hard on the people. You, know, you have to unlearn. That was sort of frustration number one. Frustration number two was what you just hit on, which was that you know building a business is really different than building a product. And you know, as a product-centric founder myself, you know, I mistakenly thought, man, if I just get to product market fit and find my first 10 or 15 customers that are willing to pay and give me money, it would magically unlock growth in my business. Right? Yeah. And that was so wrong. Um, and you know but I think I and a lot of other sort of product centric founders kind of think that way because the the whole entrepreneurial ecosystem talks about get to product market fit get to product market fit get to product market fit and then magic happens Mm -hmm. voila but you know in reality you know when I've talked to lots of other startup CEOs and founders there is a ton of particularly B2B startups, they get to product market fit and they win their first 10, 15, 20 customers, but they never unlock growth. Instead, they say, great, we hit product market fit, go, hire a bunch of salespeople, spend a bunch of money on marketing. And they have this plan that shows the business going up and to the right in this beautiful green curve. Yet, they wake up six months later and they went from 20 customers to like 22 and then 24. And 26 and their burn rate skyrocket and everybody's kind of looking at each other freaking out going oh my god like our burn rate just went up our cash burn went up we set these expectations for growth because we got to product market fit but growth isn't happening yeah right and that is i think you know my second big frustration with you know i think a missing link in how we as an entrepreneurial ecosystem you know share learnings and knowledge, you know, my personal belief is there is a missing link between product market fit and growth. And ironically, this missing link historically didn't really have a name. It was sort of this go figure out that sales stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think most product sector founders like don't like, what does that mean? So, um, we recently coined the term go to market fit uh, about two years ago and is in sort of the first book we wrote, which is uh, doing quite well. But uh, I believe that there's a missing link between product market fit and unlocking growth. And that missing link, the name for it is go to market fit, which is how do you find urgency that causes a customer to say, I want to buy now, not six mm-hmm. months from now. What's your sales model? Or, you know, are you selling direct up the middle enterprise? Are you doing marketing-led selling? Are you doing product-led selling? And 
do you have a repeatable go-to-market playbook that allows you to find and win customers over and over and over and over and over again? And you hire a new salesperson, you say, do this, you'll win deals, or hire a new marketing person, do this, you'll win deals. Like, it's this missing link between product market fit and unlocking growth that I think we do entrepreneurs a disservice by not giving people sort of a structure to think about it and talk about it. You know, when I look back at, uh, I remember this vividly, so it's Mobile Iron, January 2010. We had just won our first you know, 20 customers. We're trying to unlock growth. We'd started to figure out some repeatability. Hired John Donnelly, the VP of sales. We had a couple of salespeople in the building already. And John basically says, hey, we need to really nail down our repeatable go-to-market playbook. And as a product-centric founder, do you know how I translated that in my head? Let's hear it. I was like, oh, what he means is we need a better PowerPoint pitch. Good sales tactic. <laughs> That's how I translated that in my head. And I could not have been more wrong. <laughs> like I laugh about it now and I'm embarrassed about it now because being able to find that repeatable go-to-market playbook is sort of the key missing link between product market fit, unlock and growth. And you know, it just to give you a sense, like at Mobile Iron, we went from winning 20 customers to once we got that repeatable go-to-market playbook nailed down and the urgent problem nailed down, we went from winning 20 customers a quarter to winning 50 to 150 to 300 to 500 new enterprise customers a quarter. Like, imagine that. We were winning 500 new enterprise customers a quarter. Damn. And in enterprise software, that's crazy. And it was because we had nailed what's the urgent problem. We had a clear sales model. And we had a repeatable playbook for how we find the customers over and over again. And we just kept doing more and more and more and more of that. And that was sort of the construct that really helped me get my head around, you know, as a founding CEO and as an early stage product centric CEO, like this missing link between product market fit and growth. And that's where we termed go to market fit because it's different than product market fit. Product yeah. market fit is get to your first 20 customers, get them to give you money and say good things. <laughs> Building that repeatable growth machine um, is the missing link. And I think that was one of my biggest frustrations looking back is that, um, I felt like we had to kind of figure that out for the first time. And, uh, I think we need to do better as an ecosystem, you know, helping founders and early stage marketeers, uh, think about how to do that. Well, and, and what's interesting with this is, so, you know, you look at this as this inflection point of, okay, you find product market fit, a lot of founders that we talked to for the book and certainly through the podcast, one of the things they struggled with was even getting product market fit, right? It mm, was true. Yeah. If you don't get the product market fit, you don't get off first base. That's true. Yeah. And, and a lot of them, uh, you know, they, they had this passion. We talked about different between building a product and building a company. They had this passion for, I've got this idea and it became sort of a ready, you know, fire aim approach of mm -hmm. I've got this thing, let's execute it and get it out there. So that was the one stage. So let's say they do get the product market fit. Well, you know, you were talking about, okay, that next sort of growth piece. Yep. And, Go to market fit. Yep. Yeah. And, and when you're thinking about it, you know, you talked about burn rate. I mean, this is one of the things that I've heard from a lot of VCs is, is they work with these companies, they get to product market fit and their burn rate just goes through the roof and they don't capitalize on that. And that's what really causes this company mm -hmm. to sink or go sideways. So I love this idea of, you know, your go to market fit and building your team in here. 
Okay, go so, to market fit is what gives you the ability to say, I can put more money in sales and marketing and I'm going to get results. Right. Which is what allows you to say, I'm okay increasing my burn rate because I'm going to be generating results versus like, hey, I increased my burn rate and we're kind of flopping along. And then that's how companies die. Yeah, it was it was interesting because in the in the book we call this sort of a testing phase where you go in and you do a lot of like how do I tweak this around the margins and we didn't use your terminology but how do we come up with this repeatable playbook yep. so you can go back to the CFO and say hey look here's what we figured out if you give me ten thousand dollars I'm going to bring you twenty or I'm going to bring you fifty and so that conversation with a CFO is much easier to have of here's what I know we're going to get out of this. Here's what yep. the projections are versus what most marketers do, unfortunately, which is, you know what, just give me a lot of money and we're going to go figure this out. And, and, so, and I'm going to go build a really good PowerPoint pitch and do some lead generation. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and you end up thinking about this as budgets, right? I got a $500,000 budget to play with versus turning it on its head and thinking about here's the model that I'm going to use. And here's what our investments are going to look like from that because I've done the testing and I've done the work. So going back to, to you, okay, so let's say listeners are hearing this and they're like, hallelujah, Bob speaking my language. I need to figure this out. So who takes responsibility for this stage and who are the main players that you're bringing in? And in some sense of like the process, do you do a weekend away and just sit down and map this out on a whiteboard? How are you going about it? Because I know people want to take this now and try and figure out, okay, like the term scaling, that's great, yep. but what does it really mean and how do I operationalize that in my business? Yeah, so um, I'll pull that apart. So if you think about, you know, at the tail end of product market fit, like if you've been able to get yourself to 10, 15, 20 paying customers, you've obviously had a lot of customer conversations yeah. to get to that point and some that worked and some that didn't. Right, so if you think about what's actually happening towards the tail end of product market fit, there's some deals you win, there's some deals you lose, there's some deals that go fast, there's some deals that go slow. One of the big mistakes that I made and a lot of founders make is you're so focused on trying to chop down the trees and win deals that you're not necessarily seeing the forest or seeing the patterns. And so hmm. step one is at the tail end of product market fit, as you're winning and losing and seeing deals go fast and seeing deals go slow, pay really close attention to the patterns of why deals are going fast or why deals are going slow or why deals got big or why deals got small or why deals were won and why deals were lost. Because those are, that's sort of the universe teaching you a lesson about what some of the patterns are that then lead you into this repeatable playbook. So that's step one. Um, step two, in terms of who's involved, um, often one of the mistakes companies make is they're like, oh, I need to go unlock growth, so let me go hire a VP of sales as the first salesperson to build. Mm -hmm. um, that's often what venture investors will advise, and I think that's a mistake. Um, because truth be told, no great A VP of sales is gonna be the first sales executive in a building. They're just not. <laughs> Great AVP of sales is going to want to look inside and be like, what's going on? What are the other sales reps doing? What, you know, what's going on with the existing business before they come jump in? Yeah. So um, step two instead that I've seen working, and this can either be done by, you know, early founders, early product folks, early CEOs, or 
you can hire sort of one or two, what I call Davy Crockett sales or marketing reps, where they're out there sort of trying to get customers to talk to you, win some deals, lose some deals, and just getting a lot of at-bats to start to see the patterns. If you think about Davy Crockett's job is to find the path through the woods. And it's kind of a messy mm. process, right? Right. You know, they have to kind of make stuff up occasionally. So um, at Mobile Iron, what we did is we had two early stage sales reps that were like 50% sales, 25% product marketing, 25% product management. They were nothing. They were kind of these renaissance sales reps, to use Mark Leslie's term. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just tried lots of different things to see what worked and what didn't work and what started to create repeatability. And it was through that experimentation that we started to find the patterns to say, okay, this feels like where the urgency is coming from. This feels like the features and capabilities that customers are into. This feels like the things we could do over and over again. And, um, you know, <laughs> it started on a guy named Mike Lee's whiteboard, actually. Mike was one of our first Davy Crockett sales reps. And Mike had this whiteboard on the back of his cube that he kind of did for himself. On the left, he wrote down, what is getting customers to keep talking to me? <laughs> and on the right, it was like, what did I think customers were going to want to talk about that they aren't interested in talking about? Yeah. Right. And he just did that for himself. But then we started to pay attention to Mike Lee's whiteboard, right? Because these were the patterns yeah. of like what was driving customer interest, what was driving customer urgency, what's driving them to spend more time with us. And, you know, so that's really sort of the early part of this unlock growth and find go-to-market fit is how do you figure out where the urgency is? And, um, you know, it's not that many people. You don't need 10 people. You just need a couple usually founding CEO, maybe Davy Crockett sales rep, head of product. Like it's just got to be somebody out there like trying to make it happen. But the key is just pay attention to the patterns. Um, You know, the second big step is how do you figure out your go-to-market playbook? And I'll tell you, like, again, the biggest mistake I made was that means PowerPoint presentation and it's Mm -hmm. not what this means. So here's the way to visualize it. And, you know, there are going to be sales executives out there that this will totally resonate with. But as a product centric founder, I found this to be a bit foreign. So here's what you visualize. Visualize on a whiteboard. You've got across the top, the stages of your sales journey. Like what's the first time you touch a customer? What's the second thing that happens What's the third thing that happens What's the fourth thing all the way from when you first touch them to when you engage with them to when they make a decision to when you make them successful. Like what are those steps across the top of the customer? Yeah. This is not sales forecast stages. It's like the steps of the customer journey. Interestingly, just getting those four, five, six, seven steps of your customer journey down, believe it or not, is a lot harder than you think. Like there's one company I worked with where every executive had about 20, 75% the same view, 25% different view. And that sounds like that's pretty well aligned, but it's actually not because it's actually 0.75 times 0.75 times 0.75 times 0.75. So they were really only like 40% aligned. <laughs> and if you don't have the basics, like what your customer journey is, like how do you expect the rest of the company to be able to rally behind you to create repeatability? Yeah. So across the top, you have the stages of the sales journey. And then underneath that, you start nailing down what do people do and say at each stage? And what's the exit for that stage? Like we do this in this stage, we say these things in these stage and in order to get it out of that stage, the customers have got to agree to a POC. Like it's really just getting the mechanics of what are the, what are the, what's the muscle motion 
for your business to be able to find a customer, engage with a customer, get them to really engage, get them to decide and make them successful. And being able to distill that down to sort of a one or two page slide is really hard. Yeah. But I will tell you when you get it right and you've got that playbook nailed down to sort of those one or two pages, it's magic because then you say, here's what we're doing to build our repeatable go-to-market playbook. Here's how we go find and win customers over and over again. Hey, new sales rep, do this, you can win deals. Hey, Mr. Channel Partner, do this, you can win deals. Hey, marketing, you can put more money in sales and marketing, do this to win. And hmm. the challenge at the stage usually people are sort of scattering and trying to do so many things. The hard part is actually distilling it down to, here's the core things we're gonna do. So if you end up with that urgency and you find your repeatable go-to-market playbook, that's what unlocks growth. Because then you can say, I'm gonna pour more money in or hire more people and you get results. And this was the part that for me as sort of a product-centric founder was sort of talked about as this, go figure out the sales stuff. And I struggled with that. What I liked about this go-to-market fit concept is it was much more systematic, much more structured. It's almost just like a product-centric founder I could kind of get my head around and be like, oh, yeah. like building go-to-market is just like building another system. <laughs> and you, know, you just have to have a construct to do it. And this was that construct that really helped me and I think can help others. Well, it, it took some of the, the foreignality out of it, right? Because sales yep. is a foreign process, right? But you could take that and adopt it into a system that worked for you and did it in a way that one appealed to you, but you could also then sort of drive this with the people around you, bring the right people in and sort of get it to this distilled point of view instead of everyone sort of going off in their own thing, right? I think we've all been in enough companies where you've got the sales teams at the early stage, each individual's doing their sort of own process. And yep. that, that works for a while, but what doesn't happen is taking the best and worst of all of those pieces and putting them together and trying to figure out where it's the that patterns. distillation, right? What are the patterns? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's a piece that doesn't tend to happen. What you do is you go, Hey, uh, you know, Bob is doing a really great job at this and Sally's doing a really great job at this. So we're just going to try and do more Bob and Sally. And you're like, no, what you want to do is pull that information from them and is what we've been talking about, distill it and get into that sort of core process. And then, then it's repeatable and can be farmed out to the team. Amen. And this sort of systematizable, repeatable go-to-markets, this concept of go-to-market fit, like any company can do it. It doesn't matter whether you're a heavyweight sales up the middle enterprise type company or a total product-led zero-touch model. It works across all these models. Um, you know, frankly, it's part of the reason we wrote survival to thrival and the whole chapter on go to market fit, because like it is totally reusable and frankly, something that I think is a missing link out there in terms of how the venture community and how startups talk about building repeatable go to markets. Again, it's sort of just left to this, like, go figure out that sales stuff and make sure unit economics work. And it's like, well, how? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's part of the reason we wrote it down and put it in our uh, book survival and thrival because uh, uh, this is one of the hardest things for ironically companies on the cusp of success to not quite get there is that missing link between product market fit and growth 
Love it. Well, and, and one last thing, and we're going to, uh, this time goes really fast. So we're, we're sort of reaching the end here, but one of the things that um, I think is important and, and I'd like to just get your quick view on this is this whole process takes time, mm-hmm. right? You talked about at the early stage of like writing down what do customers like what I'm saying and what are customers that I thought would like, and they're not liking, right? Like yep. sitting down and actually finding these patterns isn't something you just kind of go, okay, so we've got a product market fit. Now I'm going to go do this process and, right. and I can do it in a weekend. Oh no. Yeah. So it's a grind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call and it out. It's a grind. I love it's it. It's kind of a grind. But like I'll give you an example. Like one of the things I've seen other companies do to make this successful is, um, you know, there's a company I worked with that actually just recently uh, got bought for a very large number, but I sat down with their executive team. It's probably a year and a half ago. And, you know, step one on the whiteboard was do exactly what we just said, which is sort of just get the top level customer journey nailed down. And then step two was they wanted to figure out the patterns of the wins and losses. So what they did was they literally locked themselves in a room for like six hours a day for like two hours straight. And they took like 25 deals that they had won and lost. And they literally ground through each one of those deals and all the people that were working on those deals in the room and said, okay, who is the customer? How did we find them? What did they care about? What about what we did did they care about? What seemed to work? What didn't seem to work? Who was involved? Why did this one go fast? Why did this one go slow? Because a lot of these little nuggets of knowledge are sort of strewn about the company in different people's heads. Yeah. So they literally locked everybody in a room. I was like 10, 12 people, something like that for like six hours a day for like two or three days straight. It was a total grind. But as they ground through these 20 deals one at a time, the pattern started to emerge and it started to take it from sort of these anecdotes to real data. And that's where some of the insight came from to be able to start to say, okay, so these are some of the early patterns. So that first part, it's a couple day grind. But then in order to build the whole playbook that goes underneath, it's a couple month process of experimentation, trying stuff that works, trying stuff that doesn't work, distilling down. Like, you know, I've seen it take three, four, five, six months in companies. And you know what? Like, kind of tough cookies. Like, this is one of the most important things for an early startup team to do is to figure out how to unlock growth. So companies are super systematic about how they build products. Yeah. They should be just as systematic about, I think, about building go-to-markets. So it deserves the same amount of time, attention, uh, and thought as people put into building their products. All right. That's fantastic. So uh, I'm going to wrap up here really quick, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to share a couple last few sound bites, and then I think we're going to have to close this out because um, I'm getting the sense, Bob, that you and I could sit down and start talking for another two or three hours and end up turning this into an entire workshop podcast instead of just a podcast. So uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to cut it short. So a couple of things. Um, the, I loved how the conversation started because we talked about sort of the personal and professional things that you learned from the mobile iron experience. Right, it's just sort of one example. And you talked about you know again this sort of already started steering into the EQ and IQ. You talked about the early stages of what you needed to do at mobile iron and the professional things, but also these more emotional 
um, you know, EQ level experiences that you had to change and evolve, especially with things like leaving your ego at the door. And then you put that into sort of your learning going forward. So this became your oath, your mantra, as you continue to look at growth opportunities for you or advising other companies for their opportunities. And then we started talking about this, you know, idea of both unlearning and how challenging that is, how good people are generally about adding stuff on, but to try and unlearn these behaviors is, is sometimes next to impossible, right? And I think we've all run into those people that have a real challenge of letting something go or the thing that got them here isn't the thing that's going to get them there kind of mentality. Right. And so being able to let that stuff go and put in some new behaviors into that is that stripping down is a challenge for most people and certainly challenge for founders, but it's a necessity. And then we moved into this whole idea of, you know, really the kind of the, the EQ that has to happen around um, um, your growth and your professional life and what it's going to take for you to evolve through these different plateaus. Then we moved on to this idea of, you know, I love this sort of product or sorry, um, uh, go to market. How did you phrase it again? Go to market fit. Go to market fit. Yeah, Thank product you. market fit, then go yeah, to market go fit. Go to market fit. It's like cola on cola. There we go. This one's perfect, right? It's, it's helping these teams that are struggling with getting to that product market fit and then going, okay. And I loved how you thought of it as this, you know, perfect green line that slopes and scales gently upward until you've reached, you know, <laughs> complete and absolute success. Yeah, and anytime totally. I see those in a, in a boardroom or, you know, on an advisor call, you're just like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's great as a vision, but what people really struggle with and they're not getting from candidly from the investors in the VC community is how to put that into operation. It's sort of, we'll go do that. It's buzzwords, it's scale, dot, dot, dot. But no one's really talking about, okay, how do you put that into a program? And I loved how you thought about this, of looking at these little pieces, being forensic about it, starting to see these patterns, watching them evolve, putting the time, effort, and energy of you as an executive team with the sales organization to make that happen, investing the time, knowing that it's going to take time to do this, a three to six month window at times, and it's going to be a grind and hard and painful, but the end result is worth it because you're going to have this repeatable playbook. And then Amen. you're going to... You're going to have this thing that you can sit down an executive team and say, we need to invest in this right now because here's the return we're going to get and here's where we're going to get the growth. And when you do this at Mobile Iron, you move from you know, your first 20 to getting into this very quickly, 500 enterprise customers a quarter, which uh, I'm sorry, is freaking ridiculous because, nuts. because enterprise, I mean, they always take six months to make the decisions anyway. The fact that you were bringing them along and doing it on this quarterly basis and getting them at that rate, uh, it's, that's unheard of growth, right? So clearly you were on to something and doing something right by going through this sort of systematic playbook approach that was based on learning and insight. Similarly, just like your product was learned on talking to your customers and understanding what the market was, use that same sort of mentality to figure out how do I go for this growth playbook? Love it. Thank did you. I, yeah. Did I miss anything? No, you nailed it. It's, uh, you know, the, the IQ topic is, uh, the missing link between product market fit and growth. Let's go to market fit. It's about urgency and repeatability. And on the EQ side, which is so much more personal and there's so many ugly, messy stories, uh, you know, it's the things that usually 
made us successful that become the things that hold us back. And for me, like the, the painful lessons were all the ones I had to unlearn, not necessarily what I had to learn. I think, yeah, I hope other founders and entrepreneurs can, uh, sort of relate to that. And, uh, um, it's painful in the moment, but when I look back on it, it's, uh, recognizing that we're really just all in this together. And as, um, startup and early stage executives, sometimes it feels really lonely. And to just know that other companies are like you and other companies are going through the same things and other leaders are struggling with the same challenges, just, you know, makes us all feel a little less alone. And, uh, you know, on a more personal level, is more satisfying and on a professional level, frankly, hopefully can help make me and everybody else a little more successful on whatever we do next. All right. Well, Bob, you've got an impressive CV and impressive POV because I, I just love how you phrase things, looked at things and built off of the experiences you've had to evolve yourself, learned and unlearned behavior along the way. So if our audience wants to follow you, find you, not, Physically, of course, we don't do that. But if they want to follow you or try and track you down digitally, uh, mm -hmm. what should they be reading? Where should they find you? How do they get in touch with you? What's that look so like? So there's uh, two things I would suggest. One is that a lot of the content we talked about today is in two books. Uh, one is called Survival to Thrival, uh, which is about go-to-market fit. And the other one is called Change or Be Changed, which is about unlearning. So those are great ways to be able to relate to the topics and sort of Get a lot of stories from me and tons of other entrepreneurs that contributed, like Teen Zo from Zora, Aaron Levy from Box, Phil Fernandez from Marketo, and Mark McLaughlin from Palo Alto. So that's one way you can sort of just get in touch with these concepts. Um, in terms of being able to get in touch with me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me. My Twitter handle is at Bob Tinker. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for having me on. And uh, best of luck to all your listeners. Survive well and thrive well. Love this interview with Bob. We talked about the EQIQ at the intro, and I think that's super important. But Bob has this really great approach on go-to-market and finding the right fit for go-to-market, how to build that, how to grow it, what that looks like. Um, he thinks about it as most founders just get to a point where they say, I've got product market fit and I'm going to go but they don't think about the discipline of go-to-market and what that really takes, knowing and understanding your customer, bringing in those EQ skills as well as those IQ skills, making decisions that aren't just based on gut, but also take you outside the data sometimes and knowing the nuance of those and how to build and grow it. It's not all linear. There's an art and a science to it, and Bob absolutely exemplifies that. A couple of great ways to find him. One... Twitter, super easy. Bob Tinker, very memorable. You can look at the Mobile Iron website. But Bob has um, a fantastic book that's in two parts. It's called Survival to Thrival. The first one's The Company Journey, and book two is Change or Be Changed. They are both available on Amazon. Just search for Survival Thrival, and you will absolutely find it. Really interesting guy. Suggest you check him out. Suggest you follow him. I love this conversation with him. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, 
I would suggest you check out our book. It's called Beyond Product. That's Beyond Product. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and local bookstores. It is a detailed account of those 90-plus interviews as we walk people through the five stages of their business growth and how to think about it at each stage and what the important topics, what the important mindsets are, what the important go-to strategies are at each of those stages. Strongly suggest you check it out. We are fast approaching the end of 2019. We'll do a wrap up here in a couple of weeks and then we'll relaunch and do some really exciting things in 2020, but I'll tease those out for now and give you more details on the wrap up. Thanks for listening and hope to see you again next week. You've been listening to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.